What's going on, everybody? I'm Jeff St. Pierre, and this is episode 127 of the Adult Education Podcast. This week, I'm speaking with journalist and author Simone Stolzoff. Thank you so much for checking out my show. I'm not sure what brought you here to the Adult Education Podcast, but I appreciate you being here and sharing some of your day. I hope you like what you hear. If you do, please feel free to subscribe so you'll be updated on all the future episodes that come out. And also, if you wouldn't mind taking a second to leave a five-star rating on whatever platform you're using, that is super helpful to inspiring other people to check out adult education. Now, like a lot of folks, I used to be all wrapped up in the grind at work. I mean, hustle culture, right? I was hustling my ass off, always trying to get the next big gig. I'd take on all the extra work just to look important. I'd be available for calls and emails all day long. We're talking 24-7, and I'd keep my eyes open for new opportunities as well. Sounds like a pretty typical American story, right? A lot of people are like this. It wasn't until I started having health issues related to the stress and anxiety I was bringing on myself that I had to take a look at the bigger picture. I had to figure out if all this working was helping me, you know, not just professionally, but also personally. I wasn't sleeping. I was gaining weight. And I just generally felt awful all the time. And for what? So my bosses could get a bonus? So my company could make more money? I mean, I certainly wasn't seeing any of that extra cash that was coming in. Couple that with the pandemic and then becoming a father, and I realized I was putting all of my focus on the wrong things. I was identifying with my job. I was becoming a reflection of my work instead of the other way around. I had to take a step back. Now, I still take pride in my work. Don't get me wrong. I love what I have the opportunity to do, and I really put my heart into it. But I no longer, how do I word this? What's the right way to say it? I no longer do other people's work for them. I live my life in a way that makes me happy and my job does not control that. And this mindset has benefited me in so many ways. Though I will admit, I do have some coworkers and bosses who do not like it, probably because they're now responsible for carrying their own weight. As I said, a lot of people have begun to identify with their job. I mean, how many times have you met someone and their first question is, what do you do? Or you meet somebody and they immediately work into the conversation what they do for a living. (sighs) I don't care. I'm always much more interested in the person themselves. I couldn't care less about what they do. But how do we get here? When do we stop enjoying our lives because we're too focused on making work the central piece of it? And is this more of an American problem than anywhere else in the world? Journalist and author Simone Stolzoff did some research into this to try to answer all of these questions. He just published a book called The Good Enough Job, Reclaiming Life from Work. It's a really wonderful piece. I caught up with Simone to talk about it. We answered those questions and we dive deeper into the problems with spending all of your good energy at work, why some people think it's their duty to work themselves to the bone, and how it's time to shift our mindset about work in general so we can all live happier lives. Please enjoy my conversation with Simone Stolzoff. How's it going? Hey, it's going well. Nice to see you. Nice to see you too. It's uh, it's Simone, right? Simone. Oh, Simone. Okay. I'm yeah. sorry. I was listening to some podcasts yeah. to try to get how it was said. And I feel like everybody said it differently, but Everyone the most common one was Simone. Every time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Simone, well, it works. Often my friends call me Simo, so you can be part of the inner circle. I saw Simo like. on your website, actually. And yeah. then I was like, no one else is saying that. What is That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Well, call me whatever you would like. Well, Simone, it is so great to talk to you. Um, I got to tell you, my wife and I have this like chant that whenever we do something and we feel like like we're done, we all say, good enough, good enough. <laughs> so when Amazing. I saw the title of your book, I was like, this is what I need in my life. This book was written for you too. <laughs> yeah. The book is called The Good Enough Job, Reclaiming Life from Work. And I, I feel like I feel like a lot of people probably started rethinking how they feel about work around the pandemic time. And I am 
certainly guilty of that. I had to reevaluate how much time I was dedicating to my job and really made me think about what you talk about in this book, about how we have this identity that's so tied to our job and our profession. So I'd like to just take a step back here and just kind of dive into what made you want to investigate this more? What made you want to do more research about this? Yeah, so there were two ways in. The first is I'm a journalist, I'm a reporter, and I've been on the work beat for the majority of my career. So I reported on offices and individuals' relationship to work and was observing how there was this real centrality of work in people's lives where they were treating their jobs as sort of the central gravitational force around which the rest of their life orbited. And then there's a personal angle as well, which is, you know, after many years of working as a journalist, I had an opportunity to leave the industry and work a job uh, in, a, in design for a design agency. And deciding between these two paths, it didn't feel like I was choosing between two jobs. I felt like I was choosing between two versions of me which you know, made me question, how did we get here? How did my job become so entwined with my identity? And I didn't think I was the only one, so I wanted to look into it. It is so interesting how we feel like it is our identity. And you talk about this in the book. It does seem not exclusively American, but it's a very American thing that we have where we really view the job as such a big piece of our lifestyle. Why is it that we do that so much more than other places? I think there's a few different ways to explain it. The first is just the foundation of this country. You know, the Protestant work ethic and capitalism were sort of the two strands that entwine to form our country's DNA. We live in an incredibly individualistic country where our core mythology is this idea of the American dream that anyone can, you know, work their way up to the top. But I think there's also things that are more recent in America that have exacerbated some of these trends. So for example, you know, part of the reason why our relationship to work is so fraught here is that the consequences of losing work are so dire when, for example, your healthcare is tied to your employment, or if you're an immigrant, your ability to stay in this country is tied to your employment. Then you pair that with the decline of some of the other forces of identity and meaning in our lives, things like organized religion or neighborhood and community groups. And there's this thirst for belonging and identity and purpose that once was filled by a broader set of institutions that now for many Americans is only filled by their work. One of the things you said there is how a lot of us feel like we're tied to work. And that's true. I mean, we have bills, we have college loans, we have health insurance that we have to pay for. Things are expensive, so we need to have work. But it still seems interesting that we don't just get the job that we need to pay the bills. We get the job that we feel like is going to be a piece of us. You know, like if I were to walk to my neighbor and say, I'm going to get a job at McDonald's, they might give me a weird look, you know, and no disrespect to anybody that works at McDonald's. It's a job. I think it's great. I, we all need someone to do that job, but there's an image of what that job means if you take that job. So it's so interesting that it's not just about the money. It's more about the image of what the job is. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's nothing wrong with looking to work as a source of meaning or a source of identity. But I think it becomes risky, as so many people found out during the pandemic, when it is your sole source of identity or meaning. You know, if your job is your identity and you lose your job, what's left? It also creates these 
very high expectations for our work where if you're always expecting your work to be a dream or to be perfect, it creates a lot of room for disappointment. You know, every line of work has a level of tedium or monotony in it. And if we think that work is our only means of self-actualization, that's not a burden that our jobs are necessarily designed to bear. And I love the way, oh, I don't love it, but I think it's interesting because my boss, my former boss has said this to me many times. Uh, when I would get frustrated with something, they would say, I can go out in the street and find six people that can do your job. And I would think, what kind of like, what kind of weird authority do you feel like you have over? And that's the kind of thing that so many bosses, so many management styles surround. It's like, well, I'm going to make you feel like I can fill this job no matter what. So you're going to want to stay here and you're going to really want to work harder for me and not leave. There's this concept I write about in the book called vocational awe, which is the idea that is particularly in creative lines of work or do-gooder industries, things like education or healthcare, there's this perceived righteousness of the profession where, you know, people say things like, you know, no one becomes a teacher for the money or, you know, for healthcare workers, we saw this in the pandemic, they're, they're called essential workers and yet never given more compensation or protections that is commensurate with the severity of the work that they're doing. And I think a lot of times employers can rely on these quote unquote passion jobs or these jobs that people get into for more than the money to obscure a lot of the injustice that exists in these different industries. And we're seeing workers push back. You know, I think the writer strike is a great example of it. You know, there are screenwriters in Hollywood who have felt grateful to be doing this kind of work and maybe have accepted less than they deserve in the past. And now they're understanding that, yes, you know, it is a privilege to be able to have a creative job and do what I love. But first and foremost, a job is an economic contract. And what I need is for it to pay me enough money to be able to live. One thing I, I want to get back into that in a second, but I do love when you were talking about sort of the phrases that people have with some of these jobs, like you don't become a teacher if you want to make money kind of thing. I love when Jeff Bezos purchased the Washington Post, all of a sudden you started to see a lot of op-eds that were about how lucky you are to have jobs and how we shouldn't complain because we have work. And it's just so funny how the zeitgeist can totally shift you into a place and be like, wow, I really am lucky to be on welfare. This is great. Totally. And the other end of the spectrum of the zeitgeist of the pandemic really shifting people's relationship to work, you know, where they maybe were relying on work to be not just their paycheck, but also their primary social community and their purpose that they're trying to embody in the world. And not just for the people that got laid off, but I think everyone's work changed to a certain extent extent during the pandemic and people who relied on the office to, for example, be the hub of their life were in for a rude awakening if they hadn't invested in other parts of who they are as well. I have many bosses like a lot of people do, but my big boss ultimately had said at the pandemic when most people had gone to work at home, she was like, you know what? I can't do this because I can't sit at my house with my husband all day. So everyone's coming back to the office. And I was like, wait, wait, wait. wait. So because you can't do it, the rest of us have to come into this. It's like, let me just get this straight here. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think like often when we talk about developing a healthier relationship to work, we put the onus on the individual. We say, okay, practice self-care this weekend or draw a boundary. But I actually think it's people like your boss that have more power to actually create the types of workplaces that workers want to stay at and workers want to work for. When 
your manager is, you know, responding to emails at 11.30 p.m. or answering Slack notifications on their honeymoon in the Sahara Desert, of course that's going to trickle down to the rest of the employees in the organization. So I think it's incumbent on work on managers to model a better way of working and try and create a culture that is sustainable, you know, both for the need of the business to be able to not burn people out so they can continue to do good work, but also out of respect for the fact that we are more than just workers. We exist to do more than just produce economic value for corporations or organizations. We are also friends and citizens and parents and siblings, and those identities need attention as well. Something you mentioned before was the writer's strike, and logic would tell me that employees would always want to fight for the best benefits for themselves. But when we see things like the writer's strike or we see sort of the labor strikes that have been going on in France in recent weeks uh, at the time that we're recording this, I feel like there's a lot of people that look at that and they think these selfish people, you know, fighting for whatever, they, they're, they don't understand what they have. And I feel like the people that are saying that are also the people that would benefit from something like that in their own job. So I don't, it's interesting. I guess the question is, how did the narrative shift to this point where workers are so willing to give up their rights and not want to fight for them? Yeah, there's this academic that I talked to for the book that had this very resonant and interesting theory, which is that particularly in the US, we have this kind of core mythology around the American dream. And People identify with owners more than they do with workers, even if they themselves are workers. There's this idea that I'm just one lucky break or overnight success away from being the boss myself, and therefore I won't vote or be in line with some policies that are actually in your own best interest today. And I think it's fascinating. You know, it's a sort of like Donald Trump idea that like anyone can rise to the top of a business. And, and, you know, it's true to a certain extent. There is a lot of opportunity here, but the sheer numbers of it, it, it doesn't pan out when you calculate how many people can be owners versus how many people are workers working in solidarity with other workers across the economy. I think the the faces that are sort of on the Mount Rushmore of this idea of like the the American dream that people hold on to are people like you said, like Donald Trump or like Elon Musk. But what people don't really acknowledge is that they were already very wealthy, like they they had the money behind them to basically do whatever they wanted and take chances where, you know, Joe Blow down the street that's working at the auto manufacturing plant. Yeah, I mean, Joe Blow could hit the lottery and have like a great life moving forward. But at the same time, he doesn't have that safety net that some of these other CEOs had going into it. So, I mean, I guess it's cool to look at them and go, wow, look what they did. But they built their wealth to a billion dollars from $20 million. They were already wealthy. Totally. And I think, you know, that's a problem that is part of a larger problem with telling everyone to just follow their passion or to do what they love. You know, that works great for people who have maybe the the privilege to be able to weather some of the precarity that comes with following your passion. You know, in journalism, for example, you know, our industry, a lot of the entry-level jobs, they don't pay a living wage. And right. so the, you know, I have a, this mentor, Anne Helen Peterson, and one of her great lines is, you know, all that passion will get you is the excuse to be paid very little. When in actuality, you know, some people do what they love for work and other people do what they have to for work so they can do what they love when they're not working. And yet we give this sort of prescriptive one size fits all advice about, you know, follow your passion, do what you love, even when those passion jobs are not accessible to everyone. 
one of my first radio jobs after college was a uh, part-time gig in Allentown, Pennsylvania for a radio station. Uh, I had to drive about an hour to get there from where I was living, and they were paying me $7 an hour. I was also working at a Chili's waiting tables at my other part-time job, and the hostess was making $10 an hour. So <laughs> when people were saying, like, oh, you work in radio, that's cool. I was like, I do really like what I do. I was like, but it is not lucrative. And he, like the girl seating people at Chili's is making more money than I am doing a radio show for however many people are listening totally yeah and i think our our culture loves to revere people that like you you know people that are podcasters that have a job that sort of aligns with their identity or aligns with their personality or maybe a entrepreneur or a painter but the truth is you know i hope we can balance the scales a little bit and say you know for the people that are treating their work as a means to an end it's it's no less noble, you know, and, and in many ways can be healthier than rising and falling with all of your professional accomplishments because who you are and what you do are so tightly bound. We were talking earlier about how uh, a lot of people will tie their social life into work, you know, and we're social beings as humans. We want to be social. We want to be part of groups. It's just in our DNA and our nature. So I guess it's natural that we do find some of those social groups with work. But you also talked about how we lost a lot of those outside groups in this same time period. And I, I just I wonder, did we lose them because we found the social groups at work or did we lose them because we were kind of forced into working more because things just got more expensive. We didn't really have a choice. Kind of be a chicken and an egg problem. You know, there's many different reasons why something like organized religion has deteriorated in the last 30 or 40 years in the U.S. You know, some of them are the politicization of religion and specifically the religious right that has drawn a lot of people away from religion. Some of it are trends like the internet that, you know, gave people who were doubting or questioning their religious beliefs an opportunity to find others to, to reinforce those thoughts. But I do think that the centrality of work has crowded out a lot of these other things in our lives. You know, one of the problems with a work-centric existence is that it doesn't just take our best time, like the best hours in our day, but our best energy too. And if you want to find meaning or community in other parts of your life, you need to give your time and energy to them. You need to invest in them. And right now there's this like chicken and an egg problem where people work all the time and so they don't know what to do when they're not working and people don't know what to do when they're not working and so they work all the time. And it is a, it's a precarious game to play. My uh, my dad and mom have been going through a very similar situation. They're both 70. They're both retired now. And my dad has just always identified himself with his job. So even though he's retired, he's still working 30 to 40 hours a week with the job part time uh, just because that's all he knows what to do. He doesn't have any hobbies. He doesn't have anything else that he was looking forward to in retirement. And it's driving my mom crazy because she doesn't want him to work anymore. She wants him to stay home. And they can do some other things together. But it's like it's all he knows. So I also wonder, is it a generational thing? Like, do you find, because you interviewed a lot of people for this book, do you find that people maybe of older generations, say the boomers, a little bit of Generation X, look at this differently than, say, millennials or Gen Z? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think I'm reminded of the quote, uh, I think it's like my grandfather was in the military so that my father could be an engineer so that I could be a poet. You know, I think there is a lot of specifically millennials and, and some Gen Z folks as well that inherited these scripts about how they should treat their their jobs. And they were told, you know, do what you love, follow your passion, you know, find your calling. 
And I think a lot of younger folks are seeing how that's not necessarily a recipe for fulfillment. And a lot of the the pushback against grind culture or this like productivity porn that we see on the internet is coming from younger people that say, actually, you know, I don't want my job to be my everything. It's also a global movement. You know, there's this group of folks in Japan that I love. They call themselves the Hodo Hodo Zuku, which translates to the so-so people. And they're a bunch of workers that are foregoing promotions. They're saying no to promotions so they can maintain their current level of, of living and lifestyle. And I think it's inspirational. And I think a lot of younger workers are going to be confronted with the fact that we live in a material world and you have to pay rent. And even though there's a lot of cultural cachet in being anti-work or anti-capitalist, you still have to find a way to earn a livelihood that supports your life. And so that's the that's the fundamental question, both of this book and I think of our lives to a large extent. It's like, how do you pursue meaningful work that can take care of your material needs without letting your work subsume who you are? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I guess that's the tough, that's the challenge. I mean, you want to be able to enjoy yourself when you go in. Nobody wants to be miserable all day while you're working. But at the same time, how important is it to find that quote unquote dream job? I mean, is, is your life at home more important? Like for me, I had to make that decision. I was playing the game. I was looking for promotions. I was looking for opportunities all around the country. My wife and I were ready to pack up and move with the drop of a hat if something came up. Then we had a baby and it was like reevaluation. I want to be a dad more than I want to be worried about a promotion at work. And you're right. Yes, money is a factor. I need to be able to support my family and to be able to contribute to what we have. But at the same time, like it's not the priority for me anymore. Like having a salary that works for me is great. I don't need to keep upping it unless something changes. You know, I feel good about where we're at. And my identity is more of being a dad than it is about what I do for a living now. Totally. I think for a lot of people, there's some sort of inciting incident like that, whether it's having a kid or getting laid off or maybe a health scare that helps put work in perspective. And for a lot of people, that was the pandemic. That was the sure. sort of wake up call that lifted the veil of kind of workism or job being the sort of means of your own transcendence. And I think a lot of people come out on the other side of those big life events with better perspective. You know, you obviously still conceive of yourself as a podcast host and someone that does this line of work. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if you love it, but that's not the only thing that you are. Now, you know that you're also a father and there are other priorities that also are deserving of your, your time and attention. Yeah, my primary job, I host a morning radio show in Baltimore, Maryland. That's my primary. I do this for fun because I just really like to talk to people like yourself and I like to learn new things. So I guess you could kind of consider it like a side hustle, but I don't make any money off of it. I just like to do it because I find it really entertaining. I mean, I'm currently doing this while my daughter is napping. I'm watching her. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> I find wherever I can to have these fun conversations. And, uh, and this one in particular really just stood out to me too. And, and I love, I love you just mentioned that Japanese group, the so-so group, uh, because it yeah. makes me think of that quiet quitting thing that we kept hearing about for a while. And I got into such a huge debate with one of my coworkers who would be in the boomer generation, not that I'm trying to put everybody in the same bucket, but she didn't understand why people were applauding this. She was like, this sounds so rude. These sound like terrible workers. And I was like, I think what you're missing is they're only doing the job they're required to do. They're just not willing to go and do any extra that they're not getting paid for. And I don't have a problem with that. Like no one should really be required to do extra for nothing in return. 
Totally. Yeah, I think there is some misconceptions around like what quiet quitting is. I don't think that like slacking off or not caring at all about your work is a recipe for happiness or fulfillment. You know, I think there's like a kind of a course read of the title of my book that makes it sound like it's this like slacker manifesto, like the good enough job, you know, more time on the couch. But in actuality, you know, I think if we all know this personally, if you aren't engaged in your work, if you don't feel like you're connected to what you're doing with the majority of your time, it's miserable, you know, it makes the days super long It makes something that is, has the potential to be, you know, a, a good use of your time or your brain or your energy into something that is a necessary evil. And so I think some of the kind of rhetoric about, you know, just phoning it in or quiet quitting, there's like a lot of cachet in it, but I don't actually think it's a, it's a long-term sustainable strategy. So I want to talk about something else. I thought it was interesting. Uh, There's a quote in your book. Let's see if I can find it really quick. I put a little sticky note here. It says, I have no dream job. I do not dream of labor. This was from Casey Hamilton via TikTok, you said. And I I found that really interesting because it's a really compelling thought. Who does wake up and just think, I want to work? Like, I don't Mm -hmm. know how many of us really want to do it. Like, we do it because we have to. But it's an interesting thought that it kind of feels like it's been ingrained in us now that working is our purpose on this world. It's not so much to live or to procreate or to create art. It's just your purpose is to work and then you die kind of thing. There's a part in the end of the book where I advocate for a more transactional approach to work. And that might sound a little crass, you know, especially because we're told that jobs are meant to be callings or dreams or vocations. But, you know, fundamentally, at the end of the day, a job is an economic contract. It's an exchange of your time and your energy for money. And the more clear-headed we can be about that, the better. I think Mm. both employers and employees can benefit from that. Employers in a more kind of transactional way can set expectations for what good work looks like and expect their employees to deliver on their end of the bargain. And employees can, for example, talk about compensation without thinking that it somehow undermines the best interest of the company. And most importantly, employees can conceive of their job as part of, but not the entirety of who they are. And I think, you know, the difference between say a a contract, a job, and, you know, some of the rhetoric that we often hear, like a, this job is like, we're like a family. Well, first of all, I think like most of the families I know are like pretty dysfunctional. I don't know if that's what we want to aspire to. But also the expectation with, you know, a family is unconditional love. Whereas with a job, it's conditional, like by definition, that's what at-will employment is. It's These are the conditions in which I am working. And I hope we can be clear about that. And I think a lot of people are waking up to that fact. Going into this conversation, I've been reading your book and I I like to think that I've got a pretty clear head about a lot of this stuff and that I I agree with a lot of the things that you were putting in the book. And I was so happy to see somebody doing the work to put it out there. But even last night, my daughter, uh, she's two and a half years old and she's graduating from her first year of preschool. And uh, we we were asking her, my wife wanted to fill out one of those little like placards that they put on Instagram where it's like, I'm two and a half. This is my last day. And she was like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was like, she's two and a half. Why are we, A, she doesn't even know what we're saying. B, why are we asking her this question already? Like, it just seems like such a weird thing to already be slamming our kids with. 
And it doesn't stop, you know? know, even as adults, the first question we ask each other is what do you do? You know, as if like what we do is tells you everything you need to know about someone. And so I hope, you know, there's a cultural shift that I think is underway where yeah. people are trying to conceive of themselves as more than just workers. But, you know, one thing I like to do is instead of asking, what do you do? Asking people, what do you like to do? It's just like inserting two little words that allow people to define themselves on their own terms. I don't know if it was on the Happiness Lab podcast or when you were Cal Newport, one of them, I heard you talk about how we automatically shift into like, hi, what's your name? And then immediately, what do you do? And I thought about that because I used to do the same thing, but I shifted. I always feel like if I get to what do you do as a question, I'm bored with this conversation and I have nothing else <laughs> to talk to you about. Like, I feel like there's so many other places to go that I don't care what your job is. Like, I, I want to talk to you about who you are, what you like to do, like you just mentioned. And But it is funny. That is exactly where everyone goes, almost like we're measuring ourselves to who we're talking about. You know, like if I were to go to some party and somebody would ask me what I do, I say radio DJ. Now it's like, oh, okay, well, I just punch numbers in an accounting firm. I'm like, you probably make a lot more money than I do. So good for it. But it's, we're always comparing in this job world too. Yeah. It's kind of classist, right? It's yeah. like, you're just like sizing someone up and, you know, I think one different way or one piece of advice I tend to give people is to try and find communities of people who could care less about what you do for work. You know, like, for example, like I like to play pickup basketball and at like the pickup games, no one cares that I'm an author, that I'm a journalist or what I do to make money. They care that like I'm a good teammate and I pass and I like box out when I rebound, you know, this is maybe like a bit of a crass example, but finding other communities of people that can reinforce our identities beyond what we do for work, you know? So maybe for you, it's a community of parents or a community of people that are close in proximity in your neighborhood or a community of people that care about the same political cause, but some realm of life that can reinforce an identity of yours beyond just what you do to make money. I'm so with you on that. I'm by nature an introvert, but I am really trying to embrace meeting my daughter's friend's parents or her classmates' parents. But one of my biggest fears in life is I'm not going to like any of them, but I'm going to be forced to hang out with them forever because my daughter is going to be friends. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Well, maybe you can get your outlet in, uh, in the booth with the radio interviews. Yeah, I guess that's it. I'll rely on people it. like you, Simone. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> if I can have these conversations, I will be sane and I'll be able to keep everything together. Uh, well, I, I love that you put this together. I love that you took the time to make this book and to do the investigations into it because there are so many really thought compelling things through this entire book. I didn't even get to the excellent sheet part towards the end that I wanted to touch on, uh, but we're running out of time here. I know you've got some more people to talk to today. Simone Stoles off the book is called The Good Enough Job, Reclaiming Life from Work. Where do people go if they want to find out more about you, if they want to follow along with your work or your journey yeah you can go to thegoodenoughjob.com all my socials are there and thanks for having me on this is a great conversation big thank you to simone or simo stoles off you know since i'm in the inner circle now uh, so much fun chatting with him about this the book is called the good enough job reclaiming life from work and it's available now wherever you get your books and thank you to all of you for listening. I hope you'll subscribe so you get notified for all future episodes of the Adult Education Podcast. Until next week, be well. 